Hi and welcome back to this podcast from 1914 to 1918war.com. In this episode we'll continue our reading of Bruce Benn's father's Bullets and Billets. We're up to chapter 7 now. As always, please subscribe wherever you're listening to this and leave us a review comment. It really helps to get the message out to other people. Now, without further ado, let's get into chapter 7. Chapter 7. A projected attack, digging a sap, an hell of a night, the attack, puncturing Prussians. One evening, I was sitting coiled up in the slime at the bottom of my dugout, toying with the mud enveloping my boots, when a head appeared at a gap in my Macintosh doorway and said, The Colonel wants to see you, sir. So I clambered out and went across the field, down a trench, across a road, down a trench again, to where the headquarter dugouts lay all in a row. I came to the Colonel's dugout, where, by the light of a candle end stuck on an improvised table, he was busy explaining something by the aid of a map, to a group of our officers. I waited till he had finished, knowing that he would want to see me after the others, as the machine gunner's job is always rather a specialised sideline. Soon he explained to me what he wished me to do with my guns, and gave me a rough outline of the projected attack. He pointed out on the map where he wished me to take up positions, and closed the interview by saying that he thought I should at once proceed to reconnoitre the proposed sites and lay all my plans for getting into position as we were going to conduct an operation on the Bosch at dawn the next day. I left and started at once on my plans. The first thing was to have a thorough good look at the ground and examine all the possibilities for effective machine gun cooperation. I determined to take my sergeant along so that he would be as familiar with the scheme in hand as I was. It was raining of course and the night was as black as pitch when we both started out on our Sherlock Holmes excursion. I explained the idea of the attack to him, and the part we had to play. The troops on our right were going to carry out the actual attack, and we on the left flank were going to lend assistance by engaging the Deutsches in front, and by firing half-right to cover our men's advance. My job was clear enough. I had to bring as many machine guns as I could spare down to the right of our own line to assist as much as possible in the real attack. My sergeant and I went down to examine the ground where it was essential for us to fix up. We got to our last trench on the right and clambering over the parapet did what we could to find out the nature of the ground in front and see how we could best fix our machine guns to cover the enemy. We soon saw that in order to get a really clear field of fire it was necessary for us to sap out from our end of the existing right hand trench and make a machine gun emplacement at the end. This necessitated the digging out of a sap of about 10 yards in length, collecting all the materials for making an emplacement, and mounting our machine gun. It was now about 11pm, and all this work had to be completed before dawn. Having realised there was not the slightest prospect of any sleep, and that the morrow looked like being a very busy day, we commenced with the characteristic fed-up vigour to carry out our nefarious design. 
A section, myself and the sergeant, started on digging that sap, and what a job it was. The Germans were particularly restless that night. They kept on squibbing away whilst we were digging, and as it was some time before we had the sap deep enough to be able to stand upright without fear of a puncture in some part of our anatomy, it was altogether most unpleasant. At about an hour before dawn, we had got as far as making the emplacement. This we started to put together as hard as we could. We filled sandbags with the earth excavated from the sap, and with frenzied energy tried to complete our defences before dawn. The rain and the darkness, both very intense that night, were really very trying. One could pause, shovel in hand, lean against the clay side of the sap, and hurriedly contemplate the scene. Five men, a sergeant and myself, wet through and muddy all over, no sleep, little to eat, silently digging and filling sandbags with an ever-watchful eye for the breaking of the dawn. Light was breaking across the sky before the job was done, and we still had to complete the top guard of our emplacement. Then we had some fireworks. The nervy Bosch had spotted our sap as something new, and their bullets, whacking up against our newly thrown-up parapet, made us glad that we had worked so busily. We were bound to complete that emplacement, so at convenient intervals we crept to the opening, and after saying, one, two, three, suddenly plumped a newly filled sandbag on the top. Each time we did this, a dozen bullets went zipping through the canvas or just passed overhead. This operation had to be done about a dozen times. A warm job. At last it was finished and we sank down into the bottom of the sap to rest. The time for the artillery bombardment had been fixed to begin at about 6am if I remember rightly, so we got a little rest between finishing our work and the attack itself. Of course the whole of this enterprise, as far as the bombardment and attack were concerned, cannot be compared with the magnitude of a similar performance in 1915. All the same, it was pretty bad, but not anything like so accurately calculated or so mechanically efficient as our later efforts in this line. The precise timetable methods of the present period did not exist then, but the main idea of giving the opposition as much heavy lyddite followed by shrapnel was the same. At about half past six, as we sat in the sap, we heard the first shell go over. I went to the end of the traverse alongside the emplacement and watched the German trenches. We were ready to fire at any of the enemy we could see, and when the actual attack started at the end of the bombardment, we were going to keep up a perpetual sprinkling of bullets along their reserve trenches. A few isolated houses stood just in line with the German trenches. Our gunners had focused on these and gave them... Crumpf, bang, bang, crumpf. Hard at it all the time, whilst shrapnel burst and whizzed about all along the German parapet. The view in front soon became a sort of haze of black dust as heavy after heavy burst on the top of the Bosch positions. Columns of earth and black smoke shot up like giant fountains into the air. I caught sight of a lot of the enemy running along a shallow communication trench of theirs, apparently with the intention of reinforcing their front line. We soon had our machine gun peppering up these unfortunates, and from that moment on kept an incessant fire on the enemy. On my left, two of our companies were keeping up a solid rapid fire on the German lines immediately in front. At last the bombardment ceased. A confused sound of shouts and yells on our right, intermingled with a terrific crackle of rifle fire, told us that the attack had started. Without ceasing, we kept up the only assistance we could give, our persistent firing half-right. 
How long it all lasted, I can't remember. But when I crept into a soldier's dugout, back in one of our trenches, completely exhausted, I heard that we had taken the enemy trench, but that, unfortunately, owing to its enfiladed position, we had to abandon it later. Such was my first experience of this seesaw warfare of the trenches. A few days later, as I happened to be passing through poor, shattered Plug Street Wood, I came across a clearance midst the trees. Two rows of long, brown mounds of earth, each surmounted by a rough, simple wooden cross, was all that was inside the clearing. I stopped and looked and thought, and then went away. That sombre note brings us to the end of chapter 7. I hope you're enjoying this reading of Bruce Bensfeather's Bullets and Billets uh, from 1914 to 1918, war.com. Make sure you subscribe, leave us a comment, you know the drill. And I look forward to you joining us in our next podcast. Bye-bye.